Welcome to the Business, Wealth and Mindset Podcast. Your space for real motivational interviews and cutting-edge business content to inspire your positive mental attitude. And now, your host, Alex Sopala. Thank you very much for agreeing to come on the on the uh, podcast. Um, like uh, I've said, this uh, we look at this as a sort of a depository of your life story. You know, so think uh, fifty years, hundred years down the line, the great, 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 great grandchildren, and they want to know who uh, Heather was. You know, what would you want them to know? So it's uh, it's almost. Uh, Take us through your life story from uh, the beginning, um, from birth, where you're born, the siblings, the family, the school, the education, your journey up to here, and you know the successes, the challenges, and the lessons, and the inspiration. So everything <laughs> into one. So it's it's like that journey of your biography. So take us through from the beginning. Over to you. <laughs> Okay, that's a very big question. I, I thought you were sort of going to guide me and uh, yeah. break it up into little bits. Yeah, but... yeah we, we will. So I, I think the best thing is uh, we, we, we take it in those steps. So the, the best way to break it, break it in the years. So the early years, like where you're born, the siblings, the family. Yeah. And then from there, we'll then take it through the school, the years, uh, like uh, primary, secondary, and then career and then so on. So it's like uh, you've got that structure to break okay. it up. So start right. from the beginning. Yeah. So as you well know, but people watching this may not know, I was yeah. born in Malawi. And when I was born, my, family's, my family, my mom and dad, lived in a little sort of medium density neighborhood called Jinyonga. Mm -hmm. In what is, in, in England, it would be described as a semi-detached bungalow. <laughs> And mm -hmm. at this point, my dad had been in business for about two years, maybe a, a year. And yeah. I, I mean, the, the business, that was the bulk of his life. He had started it a couple of years before, but he'd been in business since he was like seven. I've got podcasts about it if you want to listen to it. Yeah. So when I was born, my dad had a worker called John, uh, Ajoni, and he <laughs> lived pretty much until he died in 1995. So this guy, Ajoni was part of my life from birth. In addition, this semi-detached bungalow had two rooms, two bedrooms. And in one room, my uncle Peter, my dad's younger brother slept. Mm -hmm. In the other room, my mom and dad and me slept in a cot. And then when my sister came along 17 months later, she mm -hmm. slept in another cot. And this was very normal to me. I didn't question it. I was happy, I was content. It was a great childhood. Mm. I recall my parents being home in time, like, you know, five, six o'clock after work. They'd usually bring me a little treat, you know, like from the bakery or whatever it was. Mm. And until the age of seven or just before seven, this is how we mm. lived. I shared a room with my parents until I was seven, uh, sleeping in a cot. Mm. And it's only in hindsight that I realized, actually, we could have moved much earlier because my dad's business revenue and success had been doing pretty well for at least a good three or four years. But mm. this is where I learned that my dad is a very good planner. So he had decided to get a bank loan, a mortgage. You could get mortgages in Malawi in those days, because these days, if you get a mortgage, you'd be playing through the roof. 
of about 100,000 quatches, which was equivalent to 100,000 pounds of the day. And he bought a plot and built a house in Sunnyside. And I guess it took several years because he said when he took my mom to the plot, it was just all bush, just bush. And she was like, hey, you're going to build a house here? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, yeah, don't worry. There'll be a house over here. <laughs> and uh, my, my memory of living our semi-detached uh, bungalow was a pickup coming to our house, piling the car up until the pickup couldn't take anything more. And me and my sister sitting in the front, it was it was a single cabin pickup mm. and driving to this new house. And from that day, we never went back to that semi-detached bungalow to live. But yeah. my dad has, he kept it. It's still in the family today because Uncle Peter ended up buying it from my dad many years later. Mm. Um, and it, it's just, re- whenever I think about my childhood yeah. and Jinyonga, uh, the medium density neighborhood, it's all mm. positive feelings that I get. Mm. I went to a nursery school there. I used to be a very naughty child. Anything <laughs> that you can think that a naughty child will do, I did it. Oh, and yeah? my parents were enablers. They were, they're not really strict disciplinarians. So when people would be like, hey, when are you? this child, you need to discipline her. My parents would just be like, you know, mm. eat, eating soil. I ate soil, flowers, swearing at guests, climbing yeah. furniture. You mention it. I did it. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this who know you are not surprised at all. <laughs> <laughs> I was born a free spirit and my parents allowed me to live as a free spirit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, good, good. So, good. I mean, in, in, in some senses, if someone came to see where we lived, they would say, oh, she's maybe relatively poor, mm. but really we were relatively wealthy because everything that we needed, we had. We always yeah. had enough food. The house maybe was small, but it's just the circumstance my parents chose to live in. And when we moved to our bigger house, maybe people would say, oh, they're relatively rich. But actually, we were the same. We were the same people just living in a bigger house. Uh, our financial circumstances had been actually stable for, for the since I was born. Mm. But it was a low-density neighborhood. So the nearest neighbor was very far away. We still live in this house today. My parents still live in that house today. And yeah. over the years, they've added rooms to it. So now it's like a seven-bedroomed house. I don't, even, I don't even know how many bedrooms there are. I'd have to count them, mm. uh, including a boys' quarter with two bedrooms and a bathroom. Yeah. So wow. that was my childhood. I went to primary school initially at a place called um, South End. Um, but my mother told my dad that he thinks he should invest in our education. South End is a good school. It's still there but she wanted the best education. So yeah. I was transferred at that point to St. Andrews. And mm-hmm. I started off in standard one again, because my mom said, because you're moving from a relatively mediocre school, or average school to a good school, I don't want you to feel like you're behind. So I'm happy for you to repeat the standard one um, mm-hmm. because it'll sort of solidify the things that you know and, and you'll be better for it. I didn't yeah. I was only seven or eight or whatever it was. I just went into standard one. Mm. But uh, fortunately, when we get to the secondary school years, I skipped a year in secondary school, which yeah. made up that time. So yeah. I went to St. Andrew's second, uh, primary school. I, I still had a happy childhood. Um, at that time in Malawi, you used to play f- with kids from your neighborhood. After you've had lunch, you'd just go to whoever's house. Yeah. Uh, there was a stream at the bottom of where we lived, would catch tadpoles would play Pada, just an ordinary childhood. Mm. In 1990, 91, 
just when DSTV came to Malawi, we got DSTV. We we're one of the first Malawians to get DSTV. Yeah. And now it's satellite television. I think we've still got the same satellite dish, but the satellite dish those days <laughs> was huge. Uh, because we lived like sort of on low lying land, mm. my parents had to build like a block, sort of like a, as tall as a, a bungalow house, I guess, to yeah. actually sit this uh, satellite dish so that yeah. it can receive the television. <laughs> and I remember it as a marker because it was different. Uh, no one else had satellite TV. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was 1990 to 92. Hardly mm -hmm. anyone had, you know, TV as a thing. Um, so we got this uh, satellite television. And so I was able to watch international TV from a very young age, mm -hmm. which resulted me in me having sort of uh, a hybrid accent of, at that time, slight American twang, because all this, you're watching Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the Cosby show, mm. cartoons from, Amer from America, just a lot of American influence. Yeah. Uh, I think if you'll recall, even when we went to secondary school, our music was very internationally influenced. Whereas if you go to Malawi now, we've got local artists, which people enjoy. Yeah, yeah. It was actually very simple. Primary mm. school, I did all my six years at St. Andrews. Secondary school, I actually started the first few weeks at St. Andrews Secondary School. And then someone convinced my parents that there's this place called Kamuzo Academy. It's cheaper. I think the fees at the time were, if I recall correctly, 13,000 or 16,000 watches. Can you imagine yeah. for a term? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, St. Andrews was a little bit more expensive, but uh, for day school. Mm. And my parents said, yeah, we're taking you to this place. And I really didn't question it. My mom took me. And I remember being wowed by the dam, like, oh my gosh, this place is beautiful. <laughs> and um, I took the exam, I passed. I don't even know if you had to pass to get in at that point because Kamuzu had died and the school just needed to do whatever it could yeah. to go through the door. Mm -hmm. But I guess the exam, it was English and maths, helped them to sort people into sets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I showed up at school, I think it was three to five weeks after everyone has already started. Hmm. and it wasn't easy for me to make friends. Everyone had already made friends because I'm very outspoken. I was I was quick to point out when people were doing things wrong. Yeah. And, uh, in my very first day, I went to a maths lesson. And keep in mind, I'd been in secondary school for a few weeks now. Hmm. And the teaching was so slow. So slow, I really wanted to just shoot myself. I was so bored in that class. So after class, I'm talking to my friends. I'm like, that must be the third set. That can't be uh, anything more than the third set because the teaching was so slow. You know, like th that is not the kind of behavior that gets you friends. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so but the next the, day, yeah. yeah, I asked someone if they could take me with them to the to their class, and she mm. said, "Oh yeah, come with me." I don't remember the teacher's name, but it was a white man, mm. and he said, "Oh, you don't want to come into this classroom today. We have a test." And I was like, "Oh, it's okay. I'll write the test." I came first in the test. First with someone called Diana Banda. So the yeah. third day was a Wednesday. I think we had maths on the, the curriculum every day. Uh, he says, oh, no, you two, me and Diana Banda, you're, you're going to the next class. And that's when I knew that class was the first set because now I, uh, you know, it, it, I was stimulated. Yeah. Um, and I, I was keeping up and I was enjoying it. And it goes to show that if, if you put a child in the wrong class, yeah, yeah. be disruptive, but not because they're a disruptive person, it's because they're not being engaged. Yeah. Like the, yeah. pace, the pace that you have to teach at 
for a third set class is completely different, even in the, in the first year of secondary, to the pace that you have to teach her to engage the smart mm. kid. And if you have the smart the, the the not smart kid in the top set, they'd be disruptive for another reason. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. When I started off at KA, I think I would have said I was a good to average student. I would mm. say my my grade in maths was sort of like an A B. I have a sheet where I used to keep track of all the grades I'm getting in all my classes. Mm. And I see that from every term, term by term, I always improved little by little. I skipped from form one, and in England, form one is year seven, but I'm going to keep to my, the, the Malawian terminology. People mm. have to address themselves. I skipped <laughs> from form one to form three because they were going from a six year system to a seven year system. And I think you skipped as well. Yes. From form two to form four. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in year three, I remember sitting in the IT room and a couple of my peers were like complaining, but really they were just showing off. Oh, when, when am I going to get a string of A's? You know, like I was like, these guys, they're sitting in front of a classroom of people who are, cannot even dream of getting a string of A's mm-hmm. and they're showing off. And I wasn't even in a position to be showing off about getting a string of A's because I'm sure at the time I had three or four C's. I think they were like in positions one and two when they're talking to each other, I was like maybe in position four or five. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that was a turning moment for me or if I had already arrived with the dedication to just work hard. And because I didn't really make friends that easily, I would usually have one friend at a time. I just studied. I would study. After class at three o'clock, I'd go to the library. I would read. I would study. I was interested in the stuff I was studying. And ch- 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 before I was the one getting the string of A's. By the end of that year three, I had yeah. my string of A's. I, I think I except home economics where I had a bad grade. And that's mm. because Mrs. Munyuma didn't know how to mark. If you yeah. didn't write exactly what she told you in that home economics class, in the words that she told you them, it was a cross. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah. And then I just competed with myself. I mm. competed with myself. I didn't really care what anyone else was getting. I just had to make sure that from one term to the next, I was either being consistent if I was already getting A's and A stars or I was improving. Mm. Um, And ultimately at at GCSE, I got six A stars, three A's and a B. I was was very happy. I was surprised. It was better than I expected. Mm. And at A level, I did four A levels. I got three A's and a B. It was okay. It was what I expected. There was no Mm. A star back in those days for A levels. So I went through primary and secondary. Yeah, wow, that that's that's brilliant, and and in a way, you know, hearing stories like that, a lot of the stuff like you're talking about Malawi, a lot of people resonate with that, and that's the beauty of this, because sometimes we we get bogged down into a lot of stuff that's happening now, how fast the world is moving, but if you step back and actually think of your life, where you come from, and you're actually articulating it the way that you are. You know, even me listening to it is just resonating in the way that uh, traditional life is in Malawi, you know, sitting at home, living there, going out whenever you need and playing and all sorts kind of things, you know. Mm -hmm. Playing outside. Yeah, playing outside, you know. And uh, with uh, what you've uh, achieved and your journey, this is what inspires people. You know, when we get to the end, people can actually relate. You know, Heather has been able to achieve this and she came from this humble beginning, just like a lot of us. So why not me? Why not us? You know, so that, that's a, 
a really uh, good way to actually uh, in, inspire people as well. And uh, and uh, and thinking about it as well, just like you're describing at KA, how you know you are almost a free spirit doing the things that. Uh, you know, you would do, you work hard and all of that, not not so much caring what other people are actually thinking about you and all of that. That in, in hindsight, it's almost like an advanced philosophy in a way. Like if you look back, that's, that's what people should have been doing. So I, I guess at this point, I, I would ask that, is this something that uh, people are actually born with in a way? Because for you, you are just like that. As, as a person, just by being, you know, other people have to learn and study about the psychology of not caring what other people are doing and just pursuing their their own uh, course and their own vision, you know, because people, when they, they start caring, oh, what does this person think about me? And uh, you're trying to impress someone. And then that's when you don't get to do the thing that you want to do. You don't get to work hard or to, to do anything. And that's where people cannot do well. But for you, you seem you are naturally already with that philosophy, like, you know, I, I'm just gonna pursue what I want. I will, you know, do the study and all of that, whether I make friends and all of that. But you are happy in yourself. You are motivated. You are working hard, and it got you to where you wanted to be. Do you think that was uh, something that you were just born with as a person? Because you wouldn't have studied anything about that because you are just so young. What, what's your take on that? Because you would have noticed a lot of people are not like that. Um, I think I was empowered to be like that by my parents. And yeah. keep in mind, my parents were, ex now in hindsight, I know my parents were extremely rich, but I didn't know that. I actually yeah. had no concept that I was rich. And yeah. I remember, okay, people would ask me, oh, is your father the founder of Candlex? And I was mm. like, yeah. And then I'd see their reaction. But for me, I didn't realize it was anything special because yeah. I'd grown up with it. But my parents also didn't spoil, spoil me. So I didn't have the best clothes at KA. Mm. I didn't have the most pocket money. I, I remember at the time I was even jealous of my friends having much more pocket money than me. Yeah. I remember one time a friend called Mercy, her mom gave her 10,000 watches of pocket money yeah. when my pocket money, I think was maybe 2,000 or less. Yeah. And you go to the, to the PTC on Exiat, buy Poloni. And I was just like, our friends, they're so lucky. <laughs> um, but I think my dad was intentionally just giving me a normal life. He didn't want me to have much more than what I had. Yeah. And my, my parents were good at telling me their philosophies of life. Mm -hmm. So my dad told me, for example, he doesn't believe you should wear secondhand clothes. He says, it's better to go to the buy, to buy cheap clothes from a cheap shop that you wear yourself. Mm. And for me, that was a philosophy. And at K, there was a big culture of borrowing clothes, which yeah. I never indulged in because mm. I had thought that you should be proud of the clothes that you can you've you've got even if they're cheap clothes because yeah. that is yours that that is what you've got so be proud of it mm. i remember i once had a roommate who from the beginning of term to the end of term the girl did not wear her own clothes in oh. the evening she was boring clothes from this person that person this person can you imagine yeah. <laughs> <laughs> life. and yeah. for me clothes were not an important enough thing for me to to mm. to, to do that to look good who was I looking good for? Um, I was very keen that people should just like me as I come. Mm. And it didn't seem to impede me. So that, that there was nothing, there was no feedback to encourage me to do anything differently. Mm. Um, I think doing well in class, I guess, also gave me the confidence to be myself. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know, I just didn't care what people thought. I, I was just like my own person. Mm. And it, like, that is weird and strange and not like a teenager. 
Yeah. And um, the fact that I would stick to my study timetable uh, quite strictly. I'd write a timetable that of what I was doing from 3.30 until 5.30 when you'd have to go to dinner, prep time. Uh, even my break times at KA were accounted for. I'd usually do what homework we'd get at break time so that I could spare my evenings for study. Mm. Um, it's just the way I was. It's just yeah. the way I was. And I think my parents are also very free-spirited. So yeah. my example, they're not very compliant, following society. They're not all very traditional. Like they didn't yeah. fall into guada, you know, kneel down when you're greeting guests. When I was a kid, I told them I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and some relatives that were very offended, you know, in Malawi, yeah. it's going to be offended. I, I can imagine. So yeah. I, I get, I, I guess in a way, it probably wouldn't have mattered. From what you're saying, it wouldn't have mattered whether your parents were rich or not in, in the way that you grew up anyway. Because they could have been You wouldn't have been uh, any wise of, of what, what was happening. So that's a great testament to, to your parents but uh, i mean lo looking back here like having having studied you know you probably have studied yourself the traits and the qualities of successful people a lot of the qualities and the things you're already demonstrating at a young age like you know just pursuing uh what you, what you are actually pursuing and, and and doing not caring what other people were doing uh, or, or caring that you want to please someone or to blend in with the the, the crew or the, or the people, you just go about doing your your own thing. So that was a, that was a really really something, you know. So the curiosity here is, um, like, like I said, something that you were born with. Your parents obviously played a very a key role. But even with that, you know, other people would have parents who would do the same, but not grasp it in the same way. So the curiosity still reminds is it a, a genetics is it a character that someone is born with is it something they learn from parents or the environment and all of this so i guess you get all sorts of answers people will turn out differently and, and all sorts so uh, but uh, yeah it's 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 great to, to see your example so from ka obviously take us through the uh, what happens next for for the listeners which some of it i'm already aware <clears throat> Uh, but before I step into that, I'll say I think it's definitely a mixture of nurture and, and nature. Yeah. Someone might be born free-spirited, but mm. if they're parented extremely strictly told to comply, you can yeah. wipe that out of them. Someone mm. might be born more compliant, but because they're exposed to an environment where they're given the freedom to express themselves, they're not punished for expressing themselves. Mm. They develop a little bit more of a free spirit and... A, a, a separate personality than they otherwise would have. Mm. So at KA, uh, towards the end, there were two people in my class who were very much above the rest. Me and a girl called Patience Massey. She's still my mm. best friend and she was my best friend from about uh, Form 4. Mm -hmm. And there was this opportunity to apply to Cambridge for a scholarship. Mm. And <clears throat> I'd say the only difference between me and Patience is maybe a little bit of confidence because she was just as qualified to apply for it, but mm. then she didn't. She she let me apply for it. And until today, I don't even get why she didn't apply for it mm. because either one of us could have got it. But I did apply and I got it. Um, in the end, we, we both used to do something called further maths, which was a subject introduced onto the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And she decided that she's gonna give up further maths because she'd rather get three solid A's than get than risk not getting three solid A's. Mm. And I said, you know what? I've been studying this further maths thing 
for two years now, I can't drop it in the second uh, in the second year of studying it. So she'd been studying it for at least four and a half terms before she gave it up. And mm-hmm. when we started off in that class, it was me, Patience, and a guy called Loendo. Mm-hmm. Loendo, I think, gave up by the end of the first year. So it was just me and Patience. Uh, going into the second term of upper sixth, Patience gave it up. So it was just me. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, she stuck with her three subjects, ended up getting two A's and a B. I stuck with my four subjects, ended up getting three A's and a B. So it goes to show, yeah. I, I don't think her dropping that subject make that di- any yeah. much difference. It, she got a bit of a wobble and yeah. that was it. And I think that would have ended up in me getting the scholarship anyway. I think mm. I had I had a lot of confidence in myself that yeah. put me to do things. And mm. I was actually very proud of that B. That B is the proudest grade I got at A-level. Mm. And when I was interviewing for Goldman Sachs, our coach told us that, a B is not an achievement, so don't show off your Bs. And then I told them the story of my B and how I started off in a class with three people. We had only one textbook, which was from like 1980 something, uh, yeah. very few resources. And given the resources I had, I was so happy with the grade that I got. Yeah. Wow. I was like, actually, when you tell it like that, that that's yeah. a great story. Tell Absolutely. it. Tell it. <laughs> Absolutely. So it just goes to show, you know, and until you actually get to understand the story behind certain things, you don't mm-hmm. grasp the full picture, you know. So like like you tell it. So that's really good. Really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So from uh career, the scholarship, and then uh yes. so I got the scholarship to Cambridge, spent three years there reading economics, mm. um, had a good time there, made friends, and you know, when you live in the UK amongst educated circles, you're Mm -hmm. not exposed to racial tensions. I I can't say that any of my time in Cambridge, I felt like I was black. I was Mm -hmm. black and I knew it, but because Mm -hmm. I'm the one who's black and everyone I see around me is white, I don't don't really think about it that much. Mm -hmm. I thought more about being black when I saw another black person. And I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm black. (laughs) Really, my peers just treated me like one of them. Yeah. Um, and I was very lucky to go into a year where I think it was an experiment year. They mm-hmm. had quite a good mix of girls, boys, Asian. I guess mm-hmm. I was the black one. So it wasn't, I didn't stand out. Though 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 Asian, lots of Asians and whites. We had a few Chinese, Indian background. Um, so that diversity mm-hmm. led led to me fitting in much more quickly, much more easily. Mm-hmm. And I had a brilliant time. And towards the end of those three years, uh, or actually in, at the beginning of the second year, I learned that people apply for jobs, for internships, because they want to spend their second year summer working uh, in, a, in an ideal sense in a job that will take them on. Yeah. So this is how I ended up going into banking. Everyone who was reading economics was applying to banking. I knew nothing. I didn't even know what banking was. So mm. it was a steep learning curve. I subscribed to the FT because someone told me I should. It was very cheap. It was like a pound for a week of FTs. I guess they were trying to rope you in uh, at an early age. Yeah. Um, I got my FT every day. I skimmed through. And I actually mostly got rejections because banks didn't want to apply for visas for you. Mm. And this was just after the dot-com bubble burst. So it had been a tough couple of years whereby the last two years had hardly got any jobs in banking. But this is the time when things were just picking up. So I managed to wiggle myself into Goldman Sachs. I don't even know how. Mm -hmm. Um, There were lots of interviews. 
first set of interviews were on site. Then there were three interviews that were held at their offices. Mm-hmm. So I had three interviews and two of them were with two people. So before I got that job, my first interview on site in Cambridge was two people. Mm-hmm. When I got to Goldman Sachs, I got two people, two people, one person. So seven people saw me just to yeah. get an internship at this place. <laughs> wow. Um, and I'd also gotten interviews to something called SEO, which was Sponsors of Educational Opportunity. Mm-hmm. And uh, Goldman Sachs said, yeah, we'd like her to come in as part of SEO mm-hmm. uh, because it might it will give us some of the support that she needs. Yeah. And in fact, Goldman Sachs maximized the chances and it shows how progressive they were of people that were black getting mm-hmm. in by offering coaching before you even got the interview. So yeah. Goldman Sachs, as soon as they invited me to an interview, they sent me an email and said, if you want support for the interview, here's uh, this guy that's running this scheme. Yeah. And that guy was an ex-Goldman guy running a coaching scheme. So mm. it shows how keen they were to get people who knew the appropriate behaviors, how to be a bit yeah. more polished, mm. etc. And that's wow. how I ended with a lot of support, coaching, and yeah. Wow. I mean, would, would you say, listening to that as well, would you say for you, you know, as a quality, you're, you're not afraid of uh, failure, for example. Like you're saying, you're applying to a lot of jobs, but it, it looks like it wasn't phasing you whether you actually got accepted or you failed or whatever. You just soldier on. Would, would you say that is a, a particular character or quality of you? Um, of course, like everyone else, I don't like to be rejected. Mm-hmm. But if I'm rejected, then I just have to apply for more jobs. Um, mm-hmm. I, I remember even the careers office in Cambridge told me that I'm going to struggle to get a job because of the visa issue. Yeah. So I didn't get much encouragement there. So I just had to do what I could do. And what I could do, what was in my power to do, was apply mm-hmm. for jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember when I was applying for jobs, <clears throat> it was the Christmas holiday and I was in Malawi. Mm-hmm. It might actually be the Christmas holiday where my grandmother died, actually. I'm not sure. No, it wasn't. She, she died a couple of years after that. And the internet connection was slow. When I say slow, yeah. So it took a lot of patience for yeah. me to apply to all these jobs. Yeah. Um, I, I, I applied to six or seven. I got yeah. rejected by five. I got two. Mm. So, yeah. But it looks like you just brush it aside as one of those things. You just carry on and, and do more. Because this is one of the things that people don't take action to do things. Because, oh, you know, what if I fail? What if I do this? What if this happens? But uh, if you can just uh, block that off and just pursue your mission, you know, whether you fail. I mean, isn't it uh, with Edison and a lot of these successful people? They've failed like thousands and thousands and so many times, but you just take the lessons from it, brush it aside and move on. And, and that's uh, the mark of uh, successful people like, like yourself. So you see how you're still demonstrating these uh, qualities of uh, how you've taken yourself to this position by by, by uh, uh, doing the things that you've done. So uh, life at uh, Goldman's, you know, how many years and then how did you move on from there? What was your experience working in uh, investment banking? So I only spent two years there and I loved the people I met, but I hated the job. It wasn't for me. Hmm. Um, as far as I'm concerned, you work really hard in school and I wasn't working hard in school so that I can work like a slave until death do us part. Yeah. I was working hard so that at some point I could work less hard. Mm. But it was hard work. Uh, the one thing that I prize is being able to sleep. Hardy was able to do that. Um, yeah. 
I got great support from my managers and whatever, but the workload is such that it was just loads of hours and weekends and yeah. it was a very intense job. Mm. So I wanted to work. I decided I don't like this sort of project work. I want to work in the capital markets. Mm. I learned a lot. It was a good experience. Um, I interviewed in the capital markets at Goldman and also at HSBC. Mm. Um, it was the credit team, um, the credit team. And the guy, um, his name was Dimi Kavathas. He really liked me. He said, I think you're special. But a few people on my team, they're, they're not so sure. So I ended up not getting that Goldman job on the credit team. And I got a, a job on at HSBC on their um, corporate structured derivatives team. Mm -hmm. And that job was actually the right job for me. So the, as soon as I got the job at HSBC, the mm -hmm. 2008 crash happened. And you know what? If I'd been at Goldman Sachs, I don't know if I would have survived, especially if I'd been on the credit team. Mm. Uh, this this team that I'd interviewed with at Goldman Sachs did CDS credit default swaps. Yeah, um, I think some people got laid off at Goldman in general. Lots of people got laid off. Yeah, HSBC. I had the luxury of being the most junior person on the team, and I was actually very productive. I got myself very productive very quickly. I joined mm -hmm. in September, and when the bonuses were happening in February, I got an equivalent bonus to everyone else. And my manager was like, oh, when did you join? I was like, September. He goes, oh, my gosh, it feels like you've been here a lot longer than that. That's how I got myself entrenched on the team. And yeah. actually, I promise you that throughout the 2008 crisis, I was never worried about my job. I knew mm. I wouldn't lose my job. Um, yeah. I, I, I enjoyed my job. It was a good job. The hours were better. Um, and, yeah, I, I could have possibly stayed that in that job longer than the five years I stayed there. Yeah. But I wanted to try something different. Um, in hindsight, if I knew what I knew today, I don't know if I would have quit that job mm -hmm. because it was a very highly paid job. Um, but I had in my mind an idea of how much money everyone who was self-employed was making. Mm -hmm. so this led to me spending six to seven years self-employed. I created a product. I created a platform. I had a large following. But mm -hmm. converting the following into revenue, anyone will tell you, is very hard work. Yeah. I got myself into uh, sort of all sorts of networking groups. I was earning money, you know, enough to uh, to join a six thousand pound networking society. Yeah. But if I'm honest, um, from what I could see, because I do have a profession, the stability that I wanted yeah. was going to be from a job, and mm -hmm. it ended up being that I realized that people glamorize self employment. Self employment is not all glamour. You mm -hmm. don't get holidays. If I went on holiday, I took my laptop because I always had customers and things like that contacting mm -hmm. me. You don't get weekends. You have to work at the weekend. Right now, I have the luxury of having a job where I my, my, my contract is Monday to Friday. They mm -hmm. don't want me to work at the weekend. And if I work at the weekend, they'll have a discussion with me about why you're working at the weekend. Yeah. And I still earn. Whether I'm busy or not busy, I get my paycheck at the end of the month. Yeah. I still pursue my hobbies. Um, and one of the biggest reasons I wanted stability is that I wanted to send my kids to private school. Yeah. I went to private school um, and I actually wanted them to have access to the social network. And it's yeah. also transpired that the network at school has also become my network. Mm -hmm. And some of the best ideas I've got, even for investing my personal portfolio, I get from the school parents. And I don't know if I would have had that experience elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And I also felt like when my kid was going to 
a nursery where there was a mix of people who would have sent their kids to private or um, to comprehensive. I wasn't treated as as welcoming. It wasn't yeah. as welcoming. I didn't feel like as I was part of the group. Yeah. And private school doesn't care black, Indian, Chinese, white. You're there, so they know you can afford to be there. So they welcome you. They invite yeah. you to the teas and to the coffees, and you're part of the network. Yeah. And the job brought brought that stability of income that we can afford that. Mm. So that is what led to me leaving self-employment and going into employment. Wow. And I work for the government now. I get paid well. I don't get paid as well as I would have in banking. But yeah. to compensate for that, I have all the flexibility that I expected in self-employment, which I didn't get. The yeah. free time, the ability to go to every assembly. And mm. ultimately, if I sort of chunk my life into phases of happiness, Mm-hmm. banking period is probably the least happy, happy. which shows to me that my happiness comes uh, from being able to, to express myself in my own way mm-hmm. so because I've got a job that allows me to pursue hobbies you know in banking I couldn't have a podcast like that, yeah. they'll, they'll see that as risk to the bank mm-hmm. I can have a podcast if I wanted I could even tell colleagues about it but I don't I like to keep my work and my personal separate okay. I know I've got like, senior directors who are in like bands because we've got a job that accommodates free time and Mm. it accommodates a person being themselves. Mm. You don't have to separate yourself into, you don't have to marry yourself to the job and be told how to be. Uh, And in in terms of my adult working life, this, I think this is the happiest I've ever been. Mm. Uh, Despite the lower income, it's a good income. And you have to be about that. And my Mm. husband also has a good income. Um, Stability, there is no fear of losing our jobs. Yeah. Um, there is a, a flexibility to spend time with our children or not. We can afford mm-hmm. childcare. So yeah. when it's school holidays, I'll send them to clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it's just that diversity of life. Mm-hmm. I don't want life to be like, I'll enjoy it when I'm retired. I want to enjoy life now. now. Right? Retirement, we save, we invest, we grow, we develop. Yeah. But I mean, life right now everything that's happening right now yeah. i'm happy with and mm. that's what the difference is and it was a journey getting there yeah, yeah. And i'm glad i didn't stay wedded to a job because of the income and even when i had that job i was always very careful to buy a house that i can afford uh, yeah. that was affordable on a single salary you know things like that yeah uh, because i knew I, I banking by nature a is not a secure job but Am I enjoying this enough that I want to be wedded to it for another 30 years? And I was like, yeah. no, not really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, wow, that's uh, that's that's quite that's a lot of stuff there. And in, in particular, you seem to have moved through that, that cycle of uh, you know, from school, you went and tested that uh, uh banking job with the pressures and everything that came with that, moved jobs, went into self-employment, you know, understood the challenges and the things within that. And then eventually decided what actually is the perfect balance for you in yeah. a way. So, you know, if, if someone was uh, was was looking, maybe a young person who is in uni trying to figure out what is best for them uh, as as a journey to to uh, essentially, let's say, financial freedom or time freedom. I mean, what what would you what what would be your like top tips in terms of? Should they uh, get uh, out there, maybe work experience what it is, or should they jump into uh, self-employment, or should just they look at this 
in terms of their personal situation, what their values are, what they what they like, and what makes them tick, and and all of that. What would be your advice from your experience and your journey? I would say getting a job first. Yeah, I did it. Is a way of experiencing um, life without the instability of income. If you jump straight into self-employment, yeah, your CV might look like you weren't really employed. You didn't have a job and mm -hmm. might make it harder for you to jump into employment. Mm -hmm. I had the solid seven years of good work experience. Mm -hmm. So even although I had a six years of self-employment, yeah. that seven years was what got me into this well-paid job now. Yeah. If you go straight into self-employment, when you're looking to go into employment, you probably still have to apply to the junior jobs because you don't have that work experience. Yeah. And being employed doesn't preclude uh, exploring self-employment because mm -hmm. self-employment at the end of the day costs you money to begin with. You don't start a business and start making money day one. Yeah. That hardly happens to anyone. It might happen to some people, but it hardly happens to anyone. Mm -hmm. uh, people need to recognize that self-employment is the higher risk option. Yeah. The people that you see at the top, the Richard Branson's, the Mark Zuckerberg's, mm -hmm. um, these people, they're in the 1%. Yeah. They are not the average self-employed person. Once you look at it, the average self-employment, in fact, dig up the stats of what is the average income of a self-employed person. It's actually less than the mm. average income of an employed person. Those mm. figures are skewed slightly because obviously self-employment income as registered by the tax authorities includes people who are part-time self-employed and have yeah. a proper job. But mm. there is, a, a, I would say, a, um, not a normal distribution for self-employment. They're fat tails. You'll find lots of people completely struggling uh, yeah. the, there's going to be quite a few people doing very well and a huge bunch in the middle that basically yeah. just earn enough to live. Yeah. Many don't even earn enough to save. Mm -hmm. So at some point along a journey of exploring self-employment, mm -hmm. you might be hit with the reality that, you know what, this isn't going to work. And yeah. you have to make a decision of how long am I going to push it for? So yeah. for me, I actually just wrote a list of what do I not like about self-employment? Yeah. And the list had like several, several things on it, like 10 to 12 things. Um, and what do I like about uh, employment? And I realized maybe I've been institutionalized, but employment works for me. It works for the current phase of my life. Um, yeah. And employment has changed so much that the job I chose or the job that chose me offers me the flexibility that yeah. I want in my life. Yeah. Okay, so uh, in, in, your, in your experience, what is the role of uh, uh, passive income and investments as whatever you're doing, whether it's self-employment or working? Do you think that's a, a crucial part for people to, to consider? Bearing in mind, we want to work forever. What's your take? So when I first started working, I thought the only form of passive income that matters mm -hmm. is property. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, I've got a few properties um, and I love the income that I get from them. Yeah. But property involves some management, some level of management. Mm -hmm. And a couple of years ago, I realized, you know what? Once the mortgages are paid off, my property income releases enough. E even before the mortgages are paid off, mm -hmm. the profit from my property income is enough for us to live. Mm -hmm. I do want to pay the mortgages off because it reduces my life risk in retirement. Mm -hmm. And we don't know what will happen to interest rates. So I said, actually, I've got enough property. I don't want any more property mm -hmm. and I will leave it at that. And I started investing in the stock market. Mm -hmm. And 
I'm a very big believer that the stock market is a very good place to put your money over long periods of time. And I wish I had done more when I was in my job at HSBC to put money into the stock market. Yeah. But I'm still only in my 30s. So I started seriously investing in the stock market age 35. Yeah. And I will continue to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, I put uh, more than required into my pension. Most people say, oh, put in at least 3%. When I first got my job, I put 54% of my income into my pension. And then I've just trailed it back because there's that 1 million lifetime limit. And I did the calculations and I realized if I keep putting 54%, I'm going to reach that lifetime limit way too quickly. So I cut it down to 25% in my second year and then to 15%. And at 15%, then I'll be able to take advantage of that boost from the government for a much longer period of time. And the the surplus, I started putting into my ISAs so that my income is diversified between pension pot, the ISA pot, and then I guess the property income is my bond sort of. Uh, right. equivalent of income yeah. uh, so all my uh, invested money is in equities mm-hmm. um, I had a long-term plan of in six years time we want to move house because we we want we just wanted the, somewhere with a drive we currently lived in a terrace with yeah. on-street parking we wanted uh, a detached with a, a drive and a garage etc yeah. what's happened is that we found that and then there is this tax holiday so as difficult a decision as it was to make yeah. All the savings I've made in the last two years, I've pulled them out of my ISA. Yeah. Luckily, I've got my pension. But I was like, you know what? It's okay for me to be two years behind on my ISA savings rather yeah. than buying the house later because yeah. I can make up for it. I can make up for it very quickly over the next three or so years and get back to the trajectory I was. But yeah. the trajectory we were on had us having way too much ISA money anyway. So it's okay for us to buy our dream house now and yeah. do it up. So that's why we have had this disturbance of the cleaners coming in uh, mm. to clean up the house for a viewing. So yeah. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. so like happy with this house we're buying. It's such a Malawian house. Yeah. <laughs> <Bungalow>. <laughs> oh, wow. Really? Yeah. We're going to convert the loft into bedrooms yeah. and living space. Yeah. Okay. It's very Malawian in terms yeah. of we've got some outside space, a drive. There's oh. actually a good amount of space between you and your neighbor. And yeah. I think Malawianness was part of its appeal to me. Absolutely, sounds like it. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Just uh, a couple of things. I mean, there's a, a lot that I can talk to you about. Actually, maybe I should do a second version of this. I want to talk more about, like, uh, you know, Malawi investments and your dad and Canlex and all that. So there's there's a lot of stuff. But uh, just uh, uh, quickly, maybe just talk about uh, like yourself and the siblings and the impact that they've had on, on your journey and your life. Just quickly okay. sum it up. Your, your, your siblings, like your, your sisters and your your siblings, yeah? I haven't mentioned them at all, have I? That is yeah. so bad. So I have two siblings, siblings that I grew up with, Yolanda and Tiamo, uh, yeah. same mom, same dad. I actually mm. also have two half siblings who my dad had before he met my mom, a, a, a half-brother called Steve and a half-sister called Elsie. Mm. And I didn't know Steve till I was about 10. But mm. when I was self-employed, me and Steve got very close because he was self-employed as well. Yeah. Um, so we were kind of supporting each other, chatting with each other, giving each other ideas. Mm. Uh, my half-sister, who I met the first time when I was 17, we're not that close, but I like her. She's a nice girl. Mm. Um, I wish I wish we could be closer, message each other maybe sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but it just doesn't happen. Yeah. My two sisters, uh, who, who we have a WhatsApp chat together. We talk to each other all the time. They're yeah. great emotional support for me. If I'm having a challenge, yeah. 
Yeah. You know about it. And um, one's a P just finished a PhD and just started a proper job. Mm-hmm. And the other is um, she's a mom in Malawi. She's got a nursery school. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of them, they're just, they're younger than me. They do different things to me, but I depend on them for emotional support. Yeah. Significantly. Uh-huh. And my parents as well. I still call my dad if if I need some kind of like ideas. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when I was going to pull my money out of my ISA, I was yeah. like, dad, I was hoping you'd say, oh, Heather, I'll just lend you the 60. I think I was asking for wanting 60,000 at the time. I didn't realize I couldn't get a 10% deposit mortgage. Yeah. But no, my dad was like, why don't you get a second mortgage on your other house in London? Yeah. You know, like he, he wants you to stand on your own two feet. He's not yeah. going to pull out his wallet. Yeah. But but still, the whole process of thinking through my ideas mm-hmm. was made easier because I had my dad to call and chat with. Yeah. Um, and I did the right thing. I think using my ISA money was better than using more debt. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it, it, I, I like seeing my money in my ISA. I like looking into my ISA and saying, oh, yeah, I've got, I've got lots of money. I'm, I'm very comfortable. Uh, but <laughs> I'm just, you know what? Yeah. I love I'm taking all this money out and... Yeah. We'll, mm. we'll work back up. It only took me two or three years to get to this level. Yeah, we can do it again. We'll we can do it. Better. We can do it better. Ah, cool. That's great. That's great. It's really, uh, you know, the the story and the message about your dad and the influence is quite quite inspiration actually. So that's uh, really good. So, finally, just uh, talk us through your your podcast and the adverts and the things that you do and how people can find you. So my podcast is a complete hobby, but mm-hmm. all all the podcast episodes are mm-hmm. personal finance questions that have come from people. Um, people email me. I don't get a ton of emails. It's a small podcast and I'm only on episode 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, I produce one episode a week yeah. uh, year round, except in the school holiday months, which are April, August and December. Mm-hmm. And I set those holidays up for myself because it made it more doable. Mm-hmm. If I'd set myself to do it up, every week i would have felt a lot of pressure but having these gaps spaced apart makes it a lot easier mm. um, the feedback i get from people is that i answer their questions very in depth much more in depth than they expected and mm. it's like having a personal financial advisor but not paying for them that's yeah. what the podcast is about it's yeah. called money spot and yeah. it's available everywhere where you can listen to podcasts mm. apple Podcasts, stitcher <laughs> spotify just mm. look for the money spot and you'll find it. Yeah, great. And and finally, what do you think is the role of a good mental health for people in pursuing what they're what they're doing, and how can they improve that? If you think that is quite important, it's the most important thing. If you're not yeah. feeling mentally up to something, you can't you can't do anything. You can't achieve anything. You don't mm-hmm. feel inwardly happy. Yeah, and I feel. Um, Having routine is one of the things that helps me stay mentally healthy. Mm. Going for walks, I go for a walk every day, no matter how short. Usually, it's it's more it's it's a it's a good walk. Yeah. I usually get ten thousand steps every day. Mm-hmm. Eating as good a diet as you can. Yeah. Uh, keeping connected with people. Life is about people, and this COVID is keeping people apart. Mm. And I come to the realization that we are probably not going to see the office in twenty twenty one. So now I've started making an extra effort. I've contacted people that I know live in my local area from work and saying, yeah. oh, let's do a walk together. Yeah. I'm connected. That's going to make me feel men- mentally better. Um, I'd say those are the key things. Be good to people, even if they're not good to you. Yeah. And 
that, that I feel like always makes me feel good. If someone's rude to me and I turn around and I'm rude to them, I feel bad. Mm. But if I turn around and I'm the bigger person, afterwards yeah. I feel good about myself. Mm. So just maintaining positive interactions, yeah. trying to make, do the best for your body in terms of physically will feed mm. into the mental health. Yeah, and uh, that, that's quite that's quite key, actually, you mentioning that, because uh, with the challenges that uh, the world is facing now, we almost have to start thinking of other creative ways for us to, to carry on, because if it's going to be, like, like you say, a, a sort of a lockdown pretty much in, of 2020, you have to think, can you go through all that uh, time without interaction with people? 2021, not even just 2020. yeah. You know, whether just sitting at home without that interaction. So creative ways, like you are thinking, even if it's uh, online communities of getting to speak to people, uh, you know, virtually, or like you're saying, organized walks and things, even socially distancing, it still all adds to your positive mindset and keeping going. And because challenges are gonna be there, you know, they'll probably after COVID, there'll be something else and all of that. And man is, uh, we are at our most creative when we are faced with challenge. So. We need to create, get our creative genius and our creative thinking going on. So Heather, it's been uh, such a pleasure speaking to you and such a great story as well. And people listening to this, a lot of, uh, uh, especially the Malawian folk who resonate to that as well, your, your life story, the background. And I'm sure there's uh, loads more. We can sit here and talk for hundred hours, 10 hours. <laughs> But uh, uh, for now, thank you very much for coming on. Do you have any last word or any advice of uh, people out there in these challenging times or just generally or anything that you'd like to finish with? I feel like I should say something. Firstly, the pleasure was all mine. I enjoyed being here. But mm. I would say never suffer in silence. The more yeah. people you talk to, the more ideas you get. Mm -hmm. I think there's a ten tendency for people not to want to tell what they're working on until it's completely done and they can show it off. But mm. I found the opposite. When I tell people what I'm doing, yeah. uh, I know there's, oh, you don't want to jinx it. Andy Lodza, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the English community and the Malayan community have lots of uh, commonality there. Yeah. Tell your people who are close to you. Um, you don't have to tell everyone. And if you're struggling with something, yeah. talk to someone. Uh, if, even if it's just a, a, a financial thing, if, if it's a personal finance question, ask me on the podcast. Hmm. But my last parting word is don't suffer in silence. In silence. Oh, brilliant. That's a great way to end. And uh, I'm sure I will have a great, of, uh, um, you know, great contact with, with people and uh, uh, people will be listening to this and resonating with your story. And I'm sure we'll be in touch soon for more great content. So thank you very much, Heather. And uh, we'll catch up very soon. Cheers. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.